So hey, we just started a sermon series last week called Advent, and, and, and the aim of this is to focus in on the story of Jesus and his birth, but we're doing it kind of through two unique lenses, and we're kind of putting these lenses together. This first lens is this reality that if you have your Bibles, um, and if you open up to where the story of Jesus' birth takes place, it happens first in Matthew, which is like right here in my Bible, and you've got all of this that comes before the birth of Jesus. And I'm not sure if you've ever asked this question, but we really should. We should ask, wait a second, we're like two-thirds of the way through the story. Like, what happens before this? And um, our aim for this sermon series is to take a look at the beginning of Scripture, go back in time, and see how all of these little stories that we see in the Old Testament, all of these little stories point to this big story of Jesus coming. And so we've been looking um, at, at that lens, and last week, if you were here, we summarized the whole entire book of Genesis um, and showed how it pointed to Jesus. What, did anyone like think that was awesome? Okay, uh, six of you. Come on, guys. Work with me here. It is really hard to stand up here sometimes and y'all just be like, yeah. oh, he's talking to me. Um, yeah, you know, you feel free. We can be, like, I'm not asking you to be a loud church. We're like, mm, amen, mm, amen. Like, maybe we're not there yet, but every once in a while, just let me know you're listening. Just like a, yeah, mm, amen. Can, let's try that. Yeah. Mm, yeah, okay. Didn't that feel good? <laughs> Awkward laughter. No, not really. Uh, Sorry, sorry, back to it. I don't even know where I was at. Okay, so we summarized the book of Genesis. Today we're going to look at the first half of the book of Exodus. And what we're doing is not only seeing how we see Jesus in the Old Testament, but we are seeing how God reveals his character in nature through the story of Jesus coming. And so last week, we talked about Genesis and God's faithfulness. And today, I was initially going to preach on God's sovereignty, but uh, the message kind of went in a different direction than I anticipated. And so the sermon title is, God is... You ready? We're going to do a little Hebrew today. This is really exciting. I didn't even wear my glasses to look smart. I just knew if I used Hebrew words, I, I didn't need to wear glasses. I'd just be smart. So God is Yahweh. Say Yahweh. Okay, again, it's fun. It's fun to talk out loud. Yes? Amen. Still nothing. Okay, so hey, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3, but before we do, we're going to show one of these incredible videos that we showed last week, um, and it's going to summarize the full first half of the book of Exodus, and it's going to really set the plate for the direction of this sermon. So cue video, volume up. leaving his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, had been elevated to second command over Egypt, and he had saved his whole family. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt, and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass, and the story of the Exodus begins. Now that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half, where centuries have passed, and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied, and they filled the land. 
Now, this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new Pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here, Pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile. Now Pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil according to his own that even the murder of innocent children has become good. And so Egypt has become worse than Babylon from the book of Genesis. And so now Israel cries out for help against this new Babylon, and God responds. God first turns Pharaoh's evil upside down as an Israelite mother throws her boy into the Nile River, but in a basket. And so he floats safely right down into Pharaoh's own family. He's named Moses, and he grows up to eventually the man that God will use to defeat Pharaoh's evil. In the famous story of the burning bush, God appears to Moses and commissions him to go to Pharaoh and order him to release the Israelites. And God says that he knows Pharaoh won't resist, and so he will bring his judgment on Egypt in the form of plagues. Then God also says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And so we're introduced into the next main part of the story, the confrontation between God and Pharaoh. Now, what does this mean that God says he'll harden Pharaoh's heart? It's super important to read this section of the story really closely in its sequence. In Moses and Pharaoh's first encounter, we're told simply that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. There's no implication that God did anything. And so in response, God sends the first set of five plagues, each one confronting Pharaoh and one of his Egyptian gods. And each time, Moses offers a chance to humble himself and to let the Israelites go. But after each plague, we're told that Pharaoh either hardened his heart or that his heart grew hard. He's doing this on his own. And so eventually, it's with the second set of five plagues that we begin to hear how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the point of the story seems to be this. Even though God knew that Pharaoh would resist his will, God still offered him all these chances to do the right thing. But eventually, Pharaoh's evil reaches a point of no return. I mean, even his own advisors think that he's lost his mind. And it's at that point that God takes over and bends Pharaoh's evil towards his own redemptive purposes. God lures Pharaoh into his own destruction as he saves his people, which is what happens next. With the final plague, it's the night of Passover, and God turns the tables on Pharaoh. Just as he killed the sons of the Israelites, so God will kill the firstborn in Egypt with the final plague. But unlike Pharaoh, God provides a means of escape through the blood of the Lamb. And here the story stops and introduces us in detail to the annual Israelite ritual of Passover. On the night before Israel left Egypt, they sacrificed a young father's lamb and painted its blood on the doorframe of their house. And when the divine plague came over Egypt, the houses covered with the blood of the Lamb were passed over, and the sun spared. And so every year since, the Israelites have reenacted that night to remember and to celebrate God's justice and mercy. 
But Pharaoh, because of his pride and rebellion, he loses his own son. And he's compelled to finally let the Israelites go free. And so the Israelite slaves make their exodus from Egypt. But no sooner do they leave, that Pharaoh changes his mind. And he gathers his army and chases after the Israelites for a final show. As the Israelites pass through the waters of the sea safely, Pharaoh charges towards his own the Exodus story concludes with the first song of praise in the Bible. It's called the Song of the Sea. And the final line declares that the Lord reigns as king. And then the song retells in poetry what the story of God's kingdom is all about. It's about how God is on a mission to confront evil in his world and to redeem those who are enslaved to evil. God's going to bring the people into the promised land where his divine presence will live among them. This story is what it looks like when God becomes king over his So after the Israelites sing their song, the story takes a sharp turn. The Israelites are trekking through the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai, and they're hungry, they're thirsty, and they start criticizing Moses and God for even rescuing them. They say they long for the good old days in Egypt, and it's hungry. So God graciously provides food and water for Israel in the wilderness, but these stories say cast a dark shadow. And we begin to wonder, could it be that Israel's heart is just as hard as Pharaoh's? We shall see. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Exodus. Okay, so we are going to roll up our sleeves and jump into um, Exodus chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 3. And we're going to come to this scene at the beginning of the book of Exodus. And it's this scene where um, God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. And so um, if you have your Bibles, Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he... Um, led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, that is the mount of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight while the bush is not burned. So, so the scene is this. Moses, by the way, he's 80 years old at this Point. Um, he's a shepherd outside of Egypt. He's fled from Egypt and um, he's out tending the flocks. And lo and behold, he sees that there's this bush burning and, and it's not burning up. It just keeps burning and burning and burning. And Moses says, oh, interesting. I'll, I'll go check this out. Literally, that's that's the scene. And and it says this when the Lord saw that he, that is Moses, when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because we see in this verse um, uh, something that's going to point us to really what this whole entire passage is about. Notice in this passage, now if you weren't here last week, I have this like a little pen here. This is amazing what you can do with technology. Watch, watch this, watch, watch this. What? Again, your excitement level is not matching mine. Come on, guys. Come on. There's a few of you nerds that were like, oh, that was awesome. That's good preaching, Zach. It's good preaching. In the name of Jesus, underline that. So anyways, so this first one, when the Lord, so who's that referring to? God or Lord will take both answers. It's referring to God. But then it says in the very same sentence, God. 
called him. So, so I just want you to draw your attention here that, that God is referred to in this verse as either Lord or God. Now, there's something to that. So um, this word God in the Hebrew here, oh, we are doing Hebrew today. Uh, however many words I give you, that's how many I know, friends. So I'm, I'm like, I'm dispensing all of my knowledge of, of Hebrew here. So this, this word um, God literally is Elohim, forgive the penmanship, which is translated God. Imagine that. But notice here, um, in verse 4, it's a capital G, God. When I translated it, lowercase g, what's going on there? Um, in verse 4, it's referring to our personal God. So we are uppercasing that. It's our personal God, the God that we worship. This Hebrew word Elohim can be translated any God. It could be the Elohims of Egypt, the Egyptian gods. It can be the Elohims of the Canaanites. Or here's a good example. Exodus chapter 20, God gives the Ten Commandments. In the first commandment, let's do a little Bible trivia. God says, have no other gods. Have no other Elohims before me. So, so you're tracking here. An, another example is this. Um, I was talking with a fellow Zach that goes to this church. Actually, a couple of Zachs. There are four Zachs that go to this church. So if you say, hey, Zach, there are, there are three of us. I see, I see you, Zachs. See you, Zach. Um, there are three of us in the room. All three of us are going to look up because we're all named Zach. But if you say Zach Dunkley, the other Zachs are going to, you know, go, ooh, not getting bothered. And, and I would respond. So there's different Elohims here. Um, but Lord is unique. Now, it's worth noting how this is spelled. Notice how it's spelled there? If your Bible does not have capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Go get a new one. Um, seriously, seriously, go get a, a, a new one. Um, this is different than Lord. Um, that would be anon, 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 something like that. You don't know. Um, so, uh, Adon, Adon. There it is, Adon. There you go. You can't even read my writing. Doesn't matter. Uh, this is like Lord, like uh, like a ruler or a master. You would call them Lord. Uh, lowercase. L-O-R-D. This is capital O-L-O-R-D. I could give you a just, you could have a whole sermon on this. Go to thebibleproject.com, which is where I got these videos from. They have a whole video that just goes towards the history of this. And we don't have time for the rich history of, of this word Lord, which is Yahweh. This is the personal name. Of God. There are no other Yahwehs. There is one Yahweh. Kind of like how, you know, there's lots of Zachs, but there really is. There's only one Zach Dunkley, at least in this room. My name is so unique, at least that last name of mine is so unique and such a unique spelling. I literally might be the only Zachary Russell Dunkley in, in all the world. It's my unique, distinct name. Yahweh is the unique, distinct name of God. This passage is all about the revelation of God giving himself that name and how massively significant it is. So let's keep rolling here. Um, the next one, verse 5, it says, Then he said, 
that is, God, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God, the Elohim of your father, of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, listen to what happens next. Then the Lord said, now, I want you to try and pull out the kind of things that God is saying to Moses about the people of Israel. Notice how he speaks about it. We'll circle back and, and underline some things, but, but notice this. He says, I have surely seen, this is Yahweh speaking, God, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Perizzites and the Hevites and the Jebusites. By the way, that verse right there is drawing us back to where we were last week in Genesis 15, where God promised Abraham, I'm bringing you to a land. I promise you I will be faithful. This is God drawing us back to that promise and saying, no, it's real. It's going to happen. And then it continues. And now behold, the cry of my people, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people the children of Israel out of Egypt. So, so notice the language that God uses. He, he says this. He says, okay, I have I've seen the affliction of my, whose people? It's my people. It's unique. The, 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 there is no other people in which God says they're mine. No, Israel chosen people. And I have, I've heard their cry. I know. So you get this. God is saying, okay, I've seen, I heard, I know. I know what's going on with my people. And then you have this epic grand statement that God makes here. I have come down to deliver them. Do, do you see what God's saying here? He's saying, Moses, I am coming down. I have come down to deliver my people. I've heard, I've seen, I know, and I am coming, and I'm going to save them. I'm going to deliver them. Yeah! Again, your excitement is still lacking. Yeah! But check out verse 10 here, because it takes a very sharp turn here. It says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people the children of Israel out of Egypt. And, and for me, at least, you read this and go, Hold, wait, uh, God, so you said you're going to come, but now you're saying you're sending Moses. So, so God, which is it? Are you coming to save? Are you coming to deliver? Are you, are you, are you, or are you just sending Moses? This is one of the, this is like a sermon series in itself, and I will try not to get caught up on this, but... This is such a significant theme that we see in Scripture, and it should change the way that you live your life. And it's this, that God wants to do only what He can do through you. Just read the Bible. It's very rarely in which God stretches out His hand and, and like 
divinely steps in and does something, but rather he reaches out his hand and divinely steps in by grabbing a hold of someone like Esther or like Moses or like Ruth or like Abraham, like all these different people. Even the story of Jesus. I mean, it's all about Jesus. Jesus comes and he... He comes and he saves us from our sin. He dies on the cross to take the wrath of God that we deserve. He rises from the dead. He does all of this. And in the meantime, he says, oh, you 12 guys, I want you to follow me. Like, you don't need the 12 guys, but, but, I, but, but that's how I work. And so I, I think this is an opportunity for you and I to look at this text and go, okay, how's God using me? You ever thought about that? Like in this season right here, right now, in what way is God using you for his glory and your joy? Because there's, there is no off season, friends. God is always trying to do something through you and in you and by you and with you. And, and, and I get that probably many of you are like, whoa, like, like I don't even know where to begin. And again, a sermon series in itself, but I'll just say this. Where to begin to be used by God? Start with the things you pray for. Think about all the things that you pray for. I'll use my life as as an example. A few things I pray for. There's some people in my life that don't know Christ. I pray that they would come to know Jesus. I pray for my children um, that they would not love the things of this world but that they would love Jesus. I pray for you all that you would be overwhelmed with joy and awe and wonder of the gospel. I pray all these things. And here's our natural tendency, including mine, is I pray these things, say amen, and get up and just go and live my life and and just kind of expect that that if these things are going to get answered, God's just going to kind of sprinkle some miracle dust over them and be like, boom, answered that one, boom, answered that one. And we fail to realize that maybe the very things that you're praying for, God wants to use you to get those prayers answered. And so I, I, think it's, I think it's a good and a great thing to be praying for those lost people in your life, but attach an addendum to that and go, oh Lord, maybe you're trying to use me. God, would you open a door, open an opportunity for me to share the gospel with that person? Or Lord, I really want my kids not to love the things of this world, but to love you. So Lord, I got to live a lifestyle that reflects that. Help me to just... Live more simply and be joyously content with that. Or, or for you guys, I pray that you would love Jesus and be overwhelmed and in awe. And so I, I got to pray, Lord, I get an opportunity to stand in front of our people almost each week. May that, may that be the thing they see. Not husband, not father, not pastor, but a guy who is desperately in love with his Savior, Jesus. Like, like. We can be used by God by simply looking at our prayers, okay? That, that was all for free. That's not even the main chunk of where we're going with this. So, Moses, I'm using you. Moses is not pumped about this idea. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, But I will be with you. 
And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of, out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this very mountain. They were at Mount Sinai when, when all of this was taking place. And, and I love this. Moses says, like, who am I? I ain't gifted. I ain't skilled. I ain't talented. I, like, I'm none of those things. And I love God's answer. Notice God is not like building up Moses to be like, hey, Mr. You know what? You are talented and you are gifted. And you know what? I believe in you. Like none of that. God says, forget who you are. Know who I am. You know who I am? I am with you. That's all you need. So if you're sitting here going, who am I? Who are you? That's fine. You you got the creator of the universe who sent his son to die for you with you. That's all you need. And so we keep rolling. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, again, a little bit of an objection. Well, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God, literally the Elohim, the Elohim of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, this is actually a very legitimate question that Moses asked. He says, "Okay, hypothetical situation here, God. Let's just say I do go to the people of Israel and, and say, hey, God's told me to deliver you up out of slavery. God told me. What do I do when all the Israelite people go, um... What God are you talking about? What's the name of this Elohim that is telling you these things? Is this like the Elohim of the Egyptians? Because we knew you grew up as an Egyptian. Is this some other Elohim that that you came to know when you were a shepherd? Who is this Elohim? What is the name of this God? And God said this to Moses. I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This, this, listen to what God said. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations so before we unpack these, these statements God is making about himself, let me preface it by, by saying um, two things that draw us into the, the bigness of this text. The first one is this. God says it himself. He says, you want to know how important this name of mine is? Here's how important it is. This is my name forever. I'm not just Elohim. I'm not just your Elohim. I am that But let me tell you, I'm I'm something even more than that. And and thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. It's my name. So God is saying, I want you to get this. Burn this through your mind and your heart. Who I am and what I say my name is. One of the commentaries I was reading on the book of Exodus when I came to this passage. It said this little chunk of verses here is one of the most theological passages in all of the Bible. And and that's just um, a commentator's way of saying this is one of the most important passages there is in all of the Bible when it comes to understanding who God is. So ears perk up. This is huge. So God said to Moses, let's, let's unpack what's being said here. God said to Moses, here's my name. I am who I am. 
And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. So I used to read this, and I used to think to myself, that's the most ridiculous name ever. I don't know if you thought that. Like, you, like God, you can give yourself any name you want, and you, you like, I am. That doesn't make any sense. And, and here's the reason why, at least I thought that way, and I think many of us might go that way, is when we think about names, we almost always think in terms of identification. Like, this is a name someone's going to call them for the rest of their life. I should probably give them a, a, a name that's not going to get made fun of and things like that. So think about, the, think about the process you went through when you named your children. Now, this might not be entirely true, but my guess is for most of you, the meaning and the significance of the name you gave your child was secondary. If I were to ask you, what's the name of, what's the meaning of the name of your child or the name of your own name, you would, you know, some of you might know that answer. And, and someone asked me, what's the meaning of Zephaniah? I'm like, oh, it sounds awesome. And it's a book of the Bible. That's my answer. Zoe means life. Okay, that was easy. Um, but, but meaning is always secondary. And so we, we, we always go by, we name our children based on. Upon identification. Oh, that name just sounds good. And they're going to be called that for the rest of their life. So I might as well call it that. God is not doing that. God is not giving himself a name merely so we know how to identify him. He's giving himself a name that with it is packed with meaning and significance. So that when we say this name, all kinds of images and understandings of who God is would come to mind. His very essence and his very being is wrapped up in this name. So that's why he gives it. And so he gives himself this name. I am who I am. So he did it twice there and then once here. Um, the, the Hebrew here is eh weh and Notice in verse 15, God also said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the Lord. So this Hebrew word is the one we are probably familiar with, Yahweh. So at first he says, my name is Ehweh. And then he tells him, hey, when you go to Israel, here's how I want you to refer to me, um, Yahweh. Um, by the way, Yahweh is used like over 6,500 times. I think just in the Old Testament alone. And, and so here's, here's the differentiation between these two. Notice the last parts look a little similar, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, ehwe means I am. Imagine that. Translation worked out good. Or I am being is another way to translate it. And Yahweh is he is being. So the difference between I am. And he. So in other words, hey, my name is I am, but when you go and talk to the people of Israel, say he is sent me. Now, now we have not plumbed the depths of, of the significance of what's going on here, what this name means. So um, this Ehweh can be translated a couple of different ways, and we, we have to get both translations. You can't just say, oh, it means this and just that. No, no, no. It, it means two significant things. You got to get both of them. Th this first one um, is I, oops, I, that is horrible handwriting. 
I am being. Notice ongoing action. Or I am um, the one um, and always. One and only. Forgive me. Always. So think of it this way. Um, Hebrews 13. Um, Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever or always. And, and so that's what's being said here. God is saying, hey, who I am, I am that all the time. So when I say that I am just, I am just always and forever. There's a, never a moment which I'm not just. When I say that I am loving, there's never a moment which I'm not loving. So when God names all of these different characteristics about himself, and we're going to see this um, next week in Exodus, I think it's Exodus 34, where God talks about his character, and he's faithful, and he's merciful, and he's loving. Um, it, 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 he's saying, I am these, and I never stop being these. I am these forever. There's never a moment which I'm not. And so a good example might be this. Um, in your head, think of someone you would say who is generous. Got that person in your mind? They are generous. They're just a generous person. Now, if you hung out with them or her, them, I guess that's gender neutral. Um, if you hung out with them, after a certain amount of time, you would find that even though they are, they are a generous person, right? That at, at some point, there's going to be a moment in which they're not going to be generous. They're just going to be selfish instead, Right? Right? And so that's the same for all these different characteristics. Oh, you're so kind and you're so loving and you're so encouraging and you're so um, generous. And like we say that that's who you are. But I do know that there's moments in which you slip and fall and and are not that that is not the case for God. This is huge because God is going to speak about his nature and character throughout scripture and when he says i am just it means there's never a moment in which he is not and when it says that he is loving it means that he is always loving and merciful and gracious he's always that now the other meaning is is this um, just simply i am and, and it's this idea of him saying, when I say that I'm just, that, that's what I am. And I am the definition of just. So it's this picture of when God says, I'm just or I'm loving. You go look up the, the, the uh, meaning of loving in the dictionary. Boom, Yahweh's there. He defines what loving is and is the definition of loving. He's the ultimate definition of that. Or when he says he's just, he is the ultimate definition of just. So it's not just God saying, hey, who I say I am and I'm, I never stop being that. He is saying who I am, I never stop being that. And I am the perfect definition of of this. That, that's what it means when he says, I'm Yahweh. And you're about ready to go into Egypt, and the people are enslaved. And there's this really powerful guy named Pharaoh that could kill you in an instant. But what does God say? To Moses, he doesn't just say his name. But back in verse 12, he said, but 
I will be with you. Moses, I realize that you got the, the, the stack, the deck stacked against you. I realize that the odds are so far against you, but I'm Yahweh and I'm with you. And this doesn't mean like I'm with you. So that means in five minutes um, I will be with you. And then after you get done seeing Pharaoh, you're kind of on your own. He's saying, no, 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 no. I'm Yahweh. I am who I say I am. And I'm always that. So when I say I'm with you, I'm with you. So there might be moments in which you're like, ah, this is scary. Is God with me? Yahweh's going, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. And so the reason why this is so huge and so significant and so important is because up here, you and I, we are familiar with the character and the nature of God. Or at least I'm making that general assumption. At least many of us would say, yeah, I would say God is loving. Yeah, I would say that God is merciful. Yes, I would say that God is sovereign, meaning he has control over everything. Yeah, I would say that God is gracious. Yeah, I would say all these things about God. But when we find ourselves in a tough spot or stressed or anxious or things aren't going our way, all of a sudden, do we believe those things anymore or not? We start stressing. We start getting anxious. Those right there are emotions God's put in you as an alarm that says, no, you're not trusting Yahweh. And the reason why God gives himself this name is so that when we would say Yahweh, we would go, he is that and he will always be that. And he is the perfect definition of that. And it's interesting how the story moves on. Moses, very, not happily, decides to go and play a role in rescuing Israel out of Egypt. And, and like we saw in this video, these plagues come. And pretty much every single plague is not just some random plague. It is a plague against the different gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And so God is showing Himself is Yahweh. I am sovereign and I am always sovereign. I'm way more sovereign than all of them. And so he delivers Israel out in this incredible way. In fact, so incredible that that God told all the Israelites, go ask your Egyptian neighbors for money. And they're just going to empty their pockets because they're so blown away by Yahweh. And so they finally flee and their pockets are just filled with all kinds of gold and they've just plundered the Egyptians and, and they make it out. And, you know, it doesn't tell us they're like, yeah, woo, this is amazing. It doesn't tell us that, but you kind of get this scene of like, yes. And then they come to the Red Sea and then they realize, uh oh, Egyptians are coming. Now, we, you know, we, we know the story. We turn the page. We're like, oh, yeah, come on, stop freaking out. But they start freaking out. Even though they saw like all ten of these plagues by God and God delivered them in such an epic way, they start freaking out. One moment of insecurity, they forget that their Elohim is actually Yahweh. And so it says, they said to Moses... Is it because there are no graves in Egypt 
that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. This is how ridiculous they are. You shouldn't have saved us from slavery. We want to go back to slavery. Take us back. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And then notice Moses' response. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, of Yahweh, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And, and this is, I draw this out because um, this word salvation, it's the second time used in scripture. Um, in, in the Hebrew word is uh, Yeshua. And it, it literally means to save or, or salvation. And so when you tie it to um, Lord, it's, it's um, Yahweh. Forgive the spelling again. Yahweh is salvation. It's the second time used in all of Scripture. Genesis nine twenty. Excuse me. Genesis forty nine. It's used, but it's used as a prayer of um, um, Yahweh, bring salvation, bring salvation. And so we we hear an answer to prayer here, and it's the first time we see God working Yeshua, God Yahweh working salvation. And so. Um, says Yahweh is going to bring Yeshua. Yahweh is going to bring us to salvation. And so you know the story. The Red Sea parts. They go through. Egyptians are wiped out. And and they sing this incredible song of praise and and glory and honor to God. This is incredible. He delivered us. This was amazing. The very next scene. They're thirsty. Get uncomfortable. Moses, we want to go back to Egypt. And then God gives them water. And then they get hungry. Moses, why did you do that? We want to go back to Egypt. We had have, we have like bread there. And God provides bread from heaven. And then they want meat. Because they weren't vegetarians. And no, we want meat. We want to go back to Egypt. And so God provides meat. And it's just a cycle over and over and over and over and over and over again. And it's like we saw in that video. Like you literally begin to see, oh, their hearts seem to be just kind of just as hard as, as Pharaoh's. And remember who Israel's supposed to be. If you were here last week, Israel is supposed to be a light to all the other nations. Kind of like how Christians are supposed to be lights to non-believers. That people, that people would look at Christians' lives and go, man... That salvation that you talk about, that gospel that you talk about, it must be really, really good because your life is different. I want what you have. That's what Israel was supposed to be. They were supposed to point people and draw people to Yahweh. And they were horrible at it. And so what does God do? He inserts himself into the story and sends his son, Jesus. And we come to Matthew 1. And it's this scene where Moses figures out that Mary is pregnant. He doesn't quite get or understand that it's Jesus, the Son of God. Um, and so he's torn. Should I divorce her or should I not? 
And so an angel appears and it says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will what? Save his people from their sins. Take a guess on what the Hebrew name Jesus is. Any Joshua's in here? Yeshua. Actually, if you look it up, it's Yahweh. Yahweh, Yeshua. Yahweh saves. So you get this. We got to remember the Exodus is the scene for the Israelites. It is their story. You and I, we point to the cross. Ancient Jews would point to Exodus. Look how God brought us out. It's amazing. It's awesome. Look at that salvation. And we just keep blowing it. Keep messing up. And so Matthew, this is not coincidence. Matthew's like, oh, I didn't realize I did that. It's pretty cool. Look at that. Matthew is writing to a to a Jewish audience. That, that's his, his gospel is meant for a Jewish audience. So he's writing to Jews, and, and so he's going, hey, you know, there's this guy named Yeshua. Remember, remember the Exodus? Remember how, remember how God parted those waters? Remember how God saved you and destroyed all of that evil in, in, in Egypt? Yeah, there's a new Yeshua here. There's a new Jesus. It gets so much better. I cut out stuff. There's more. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is our God. This is our Yahweh. A God who says he is loving and says you can take that to the bank. Says he is merciful and he is gracious. So all that stress, all that anxiety, all the, those moments of fear, lean into Yahweh. And if there's ever a moment in which you're like, how do I really know, really, really do know that Yahweh does love me? The Israelites would have pointed back to the Exodus. See, see what he did for us? He delivered us from slavery. He does love us. I don't know if you realize this. We have something way better. We get to point to the cross and say, Yahweh came in the flesh and he was God with us. And he went on the cross and he bore the wrath of God that we deserve. He bore it on himself. And he saved us from our sins. And he gives us eternal life. And he gives us this abundant life right here, right now, to be used by him for his glory and our joy. And so I, I was trying to think application. Like, how do we tie this incredible story into our lives? And, 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 and what I came up with was this question. How's your heart? Because that, that was the struggle for the Israelites. And even Moses. Moses had this struggle. Read chapter 4. We skipped that part where Moses is like, I ain't going. I'm just not going. 
I don't care if you turn me into leprosy. Oops, you did, but I'm still not going. Like, just such a hard heart. In Israel, such a hard heart. And Yahweh is going, this is who I am, and I will always be this. And I even up the ante by bringing and sending my son to die for you. How's your heart? Is, is Yahweh the center of it, or is he not? And I just pray that we would look at this story and go, God, you are so good. You are so faithful. You are so loving. Yahweh, be the center. Christ, be the center of my life. You are an incredible Savior. And I want you to be the Lord of my life. So how's your heart? Here's the great thing. Yahweh also says, I am gracious. And I'm always gracious. And there's never a moment in which I'm not gracious. And so I say this over and over again, and I'll never stop saying this, is that anytime you have sin in your life, if there's any moment which says, my heart is dirty, nasty, horrible. You know what happens when you bring your dirty, nasty heart before God and say, will, will, you, will you forgive me? I want your son Jesus. I want his, his death to cover over my dirty, nasty heart. You know what God says to you every single time? What did he say? I forgive you. And some of you might need to do that this morning. And God is going to say the same exact thing every single time. Let's pray. Yahweh, thank you for how good you are to us. Thank you that everything you say you are, you are that to perfection. Everything you say you are, you are always that and it never ends. And thank you most of all for sending your son Jesus, the great Yahweh, dying on the cross for us. What a savior we have. Oh my goodness. And Father, would you check our hearts this morning? Would you allow our hearts to be drawn to you? Would you soften our hearts? Would you give our hearts a sense of awe and wonder of how incredible you are? And that for those of us here who maybe need to get on our knees and repent, would you give us the courage to do that, knowing that your forgiveness awaits us? Lord, we, we want to lift our voices in praise in this last song, and we want to lift and maybe even bow our hearts in submission to you. And we pray this, and everyone said, Amen.